Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I want you to picture a scene. It's 1969 and I'm a 12-year-old schoolboy at Oldbury Technical School in the West Midlands of England. And I am about to read a poem in assembly. Now, assembly in those days was very much a, a religious thing. And the poem I'm going to read um, has been selected for me by the English teacher. And um, it's not your usual kind of religious assembly poem. I knew nothing of poetry, but I'd certainly never seen anything like this before. The poem was in a book um, in the Penguin Modern Poets series. Now, incidentally, the Penguin Modern Poets series was a classic series um, of, of collections of poetry. I would recommend... They're in second-hand shops all over the world. Check them out. This was Penguin Modern Poets um, number five. And as ever with the, these books, you get three poets and uh, a selection of, uh, of each of their poems. Anyway, the one I had to read in assembly was a poem by uh, an American poet called Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And the poem was called Sometime During Eternity. Um, now, the first thing that struck me about it as, as a 12-year-old, um, I mean, it was written in 1958, and it is full of sort of hipster language, the, the, the thing that the jazz crowd, that kind of um, talk... Uh, it's about Jesus, but you can imagine it being said by someone in a beret in a in a downstairs coffee bar shortly after the bongo playing has finished. OK, here goes with the first bit. I read it at the time in an American gangster accent because that was the only American accent I had at my fingertips. I'm not going to do that now. Here goes. Sometime during eternity, some guys show up, and one of them who shows up real late is a kind of carpenter from some square-type place like Galilee, and he starts wailing and claiming he is hip to who made heaven and earth, and that the cat who really laid it on us is his dad. Now, I know that sounds... A bit like a parody thing now, but it was written in 1955, and the idea that this hipster street jazz language be used in poetry was still quite a revolutionary thing. I'd come across this language before, but only in black and white English movies where people like Adam Faith, the English pop star, were sort of trying to reproduce it. There's a film, I don't know what title it was, some of you will know. And they're at a party and some music is played and, and a guy says, Whoa, that's cool, man. Straight out the fridge. And later on, a young woman is asked if she'd like to dance with the line, Come on, snake, let's crawl. It's it's kind of cheesy. And I'm, I'm not even selling um, Sometime During Eternity as a great poem. But for me, it was a formative moment because I didn't know poetry could be like this. I didn't really know much about poetry at all. But I had a sense of a lot of these and those and a lot of descriptions of um, sunrise. Um, Whereas this is really, I'd certainly, as a young Catholic lad, never read anything like this on, on a religious theme. 
And uh, the jazz language was was a thing um, used a lot by this particular literary group known as the Beats, the Beat Generation. And and they rose up in the uh, 50s, although they were certainly active before that. And I think they kind of changed the world forever. The sort of jazz that they liked, by the way, because jazz is essential to this poem as it is to a lot of their writing. I'm going to be up front with you. I know little or nothing about jazz. If there's any jazz cool cats out there, um, you'll be able to fill in the, the gaps. But the sort of jazz they liked was a thing called bebop, um, as played by Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, that kind of thing. And uh, it's that sort of jazz that goes... That, you, know, you know the kind. You know the kind I, uh, I mean. So um, I got into the Beats originally. I was in New York with some time on my hands and I went to the, the city library to an exhibition about a writer called Jack Kerouac, who I had heard of but knew nothing of other than he'd written a book called uh, On the Road, which I'd never read. I was once at um, Victoria Cora Mitchell's house and I noticed, this was after I'd become a, a big Jack Kerouac fan, that she'd got several Kerouac books in her bookcase. And I said, oh, you like Kerouac? And she said, um, I used to. And I think that's what it is with the beats. You're supposed to grow out of them really. It's supposed to be a thing that when you are a teenager slightly discovering uh, rebellion, you get into the beats. When I'm talking about the beats, I'm talking about writers like Jack Kerouac, um, Ferlinghetti, who wrote the poem that that we're talking about at the moment, Allen Ginsberg, William S. Burroughs. You can check them all out. They've all got wild stuff to say. And I, what I love about them is they believe in writing almost as a sacred thing. And they believe in blasting it out and getting it down there and getting your feelings on the page and not massively structuring it or editing it. When uh, Jack Kerouac wrote his great um, novel On the Road, he wrote it on a continual long length of paper in his manual typewriter. So he didn't, he didn't even have to stop to change sheets of A4. He just blasted it out in, in, in a sort of crazed stream of creative wonder. Um, I'm going to read you a, a, a bit um, from Jack Kerouac's On the Road. I know it's a novel, but I, between you and me, I've, I, I don't really... I don't really see it as a novel. I think it's like a massive long poem. But that's, you know, you you don't have to uh, buy into into that necessarily. So in this quote, um, I want to read to you, because I think this says a lot about the beats and about their attitude to to life, but certainly to, to writing. The two main characters that are in, in the book are at a, at a jazz gig. And... Um, there's a guy, a young guy in the jazz band called Perez, who is the super cool young horn player. And he, he is the sort of the one that's catching everyone's attention. And then there's an older band leader who has been playing jazz for a long time, who has no real ambitious dreams. He just loves, he just loves the music. And one of the characters points out the way the older band leader and Prez, the young wonder kid, are different in their attitudes to the music. 
I'm going to quote now from uh, Kerouac's On the Road. You see, man, prayers, I should say prayers is the young guy. Uh, I should also point out that a clinker has obviously other meanings, but it's, it's a bomb note if someone hits a, a bomb note musically. Okay. You see, man, prayers has the technical anxieties of the money-making musician. He's the only one who's well-dressed. See him grow worried when he blows a clinker. But the leader, that cool cat, tells him not to worry and just blow and blow. The mere sound and serious exuberance of the music is all he cares about. He's an artist. And that, for me, is the beat's attitude, certainly to poetry. Just blow and blow. Just just let it fall out of you and um and you will find um you will find uh, truth so in in the poem um the poem that probably the poem that got me into poetry or certainly one of them um sometime during eternity jesus um he he dies as you know in, as in the usual uh story and they stretch him on the tree to cool is is what we're told and then and then he becomes a sort of a jazz hero. Uh, it says, uh, after they've hung him on the tree, they've stretched him on the tree to cool. And everybody after that is always making models of this tree with him hung up and always crooning his name and calling him to come down and sit in on their combo as if he is the king cat who's got to blow or they can't quite make it. So now... Now he is the this sort of iconic jazz figure, which might might sound an odd way of looking at Jesus, whatever your um, religious or non-religious views are. But I think it's because these guys saw jazz as a representation of the truth and as a, of the human spirit. And so t- for someone who is a jazz master, they have to have some of the same qualities as Jesus Christ. I think that's uh, that's what's going on. Can I also say this poem is all over the place. There's lines, short, tiny two-word lines, long lines. It's it's a bit like a jazz solo. There's there's wailing long bits and then staccato moments. Um, Gregory Corso, who is another beat writer who is featured in this same Penguin Modern Poets number five, and I'm going to talk about him in a minute, he wrote a poem called Bomb, and he has uh, shaped the words t- to form uh, the image of a bomb, which I know now it sounds like something you might do in the fifth year, but at the time, these guys were, were really the building bricks in many ways of the modern alternative society. And anyone who, who, who feels um, that they have a, a, an alternative soul. For me, the great joy of the beats and the thing I've tried to learn from them is that they have no fear of the blank page. That's what stops most of us from writing or creating anything. I once did an art class and in the first lesson, we had to pay for the paper. It was something like 20 pence a sheet to draw on. And the teacher, I bought my sheets and the teacher said, right, I'd like to take one of those sheets off there, crumple it up in your hands. I thought it was going to be a sort of papier-mâché thing. Crumple it up in your hands. And then she said, right, throw it on the floor and stamp it now in the dirt until it's unusable. 
That is the kind of disrespect for the blank page I want you to have. That's the kind of fearlessness I want you to approach the white blank page with. And that, for me, is how the beats, they just blow and blow and we'll see what happens. Okay, in this same collection, this same Penguin Modern Poets 5, um, which features three beat poets, I'd like to look at another poem by Gregory Corso. And this poem is called Man About to Enter Sea. And it's one of the things that poets do a lot is see an ordinary thing that we all see and then they illuminate it. They do something with that everyday thing that makes it sacred, if you like. So... Gregory Corso watches a man walk into the sea. I don't mean a dramatic, I mean a man, just a, a bather, you know, a, 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 a guy on the beach who's just going in for a, for a, for a, um, a paddle uh, or a swim. Um, so not, it's not a spectacular scene, but it becomes so for Corso. And so um, Corso tells us what he's watching on the beach. Here goes. Walking into the summer cold sea, arms folded, trying to keep the wave and frolicky bather splashings from further chilling him, he moves as if not to, but I know he'll eventually go with a <gasps> knowing and become warm. And it's about that moment when you enter the cold, cold sea and it becomes warm strangely when you become fully um fully into it uh it's i think it it could well be another image of writing for these guys that that's kind of what it's about um creativity is a cold and threatening thing but once you get your shoulders under the water it's uh it's much much better i mean at that line that he he's trying to keep the wave and frolicky bather splashings from further chilling him. Just you know, how many times have you been on the beach and trying to avoid frolicky bather splashings? You know, it, it's it's an occupational hazard of, of anyone who, who swims um, on beaches or from beaches. But um, a man I love, I just love it. So then... Uh, this already, I think it's a nice piece of observation by Corso that you go into a cold sea and it becomes warm and then you feel at home there. But then he, he wants to make it bigger than that. He wants to expand it so that the sea and and the warm, it's all to do now suddenly for him from when we emerge from the sea as a species. So it's a sort of the sea is our home in a way because that's, if you believe in evolution which I think most people do now, certainly in the, in the, in the UK. Um, for our American listeners, you can uh, pay your money and take your choice. We came from the sea, and he, he talks about that. Suddenly this guy now, this, bear in mind, this is just some bloke on the beach. Now the man becomes mankind, and a paddle or a swim becomes evolution. It becomes the beginning of, of life. Here goes with, uh, this is how Corso expresses it. That curious warm is all too familiar as when frogs from fish kicked 
and fins winged flew, and whatever it was decided longs, and a chance in the change above the sea. There he wades millions of years that are legs, back into that biggest and strangest of wombs. So just listen to some of that. That time, the beginning of time when frogs from fish kicked. You can see those fish sort of kicking in their way into frogs, kind of amazing. And fins winged flew. So the fins changing into wings, leaving the water and, and moving into the air. It's uh, and, and took a chance in the change above the sea. They didn't know what would be up there, but they felt drawn and they took a chance on the change of that move into a different world. And this guy wades millions of years that are legs because that's so long it took legs to develop. And this guy's legs, I'm guessing they're a bit hairy and not that great, but they took millions of years to become what they are. And the sea being described as that biggest and strangest of wombs, you kind of forget. I'm frightened of water, you know, so um, this is a, a quite a big revelation for me. That's where we all came from in a, in a kind of a strange, long time ago kind of a, of, of a way. So he, he, he does that beat thing that he starts going, going into a reverie about an everyday... Uh, an everyday event. And then suddenly he's pulled up by the normal. And anyone listening to this who sees themselves as as, as, a, as a, just, a, you know, a, a creative type or someone who thinks a bit, um, a bit differently, um, you know that moment when the normal just bangs in like a, like a speed bump and, and, and slows you down. And that happens in, that happens in this. When he suddenly, he starts to go, you know, but I feel he's got algae, but I feel he's algae for skin. He who calls the dinosaur his unfortunate brother. And what with crawling anthropods? um, So that bit, that's him going crazy. let, Let me do the whole bit. He stands, the seas up to his belly button. He would it nothing more than a holiday's dip. So for him, it is just a dip in the sea. But I feel he's algae for skin. He who calls the dinosaur his unfortunate brother. And what with crawling anthropods and then pull back again. Oh, they're only bathers on a summer shore. And it's that conflict now with Corso is that he's, he's, he's seeing him as this representative of mankind. And then suddenly he's just an ordinary bloke bathing again. And it's it's the way that the real world leaks in to the the creative vessel and threatens it with uh, with sinking. I would I would say he fights that in this poem. He fights the mundane response like the beats always do, like that old band leader instructing the uh, the ambitious youth. D- don't don't let yourself buy into the sense of the ordinary what the what people want what people think they know allow yourself to see beyond all that and the last three lines of this poem they completely shrug off the idea that this guy is um is just going in for a dip they they it's not 
a bloke on his holidays, it, it gets even more cosmic. Listen to this. Yet it is possible to drown in a surface of air, deem the entire earth one now in, and once in, fated out again. So the world can be um, can be the thing that you're having to go oh, now in and stepping into and seems a bit frightening. And once you're in, you have to come out again. We will all have to come out again. And he is, he's just magnified this, this whole thing. So now entering the world is a, a now in a thing. Maybe it's a sort of birth image so that emerging into the world is like stepping into the cold sea. And it ends, the whole poem ends with our immortality and a deeply unsatisfying hyphen when it says um, it's possible to drown in a surface of air, deem the entire earth one now in and once in, fated out again, hyphen. It ends with a hyphen. And that is a deliberate thing, I think, to say this is not the end. This is not just go on and think about this. This poem is, a, is, a, is part of a continual process of questioning and looking at things and seeing them hopefully differently. I don't know if I made that bit as clear as I, as I wanted to at the end, but, you know, poems, they, they mean stuff and sometimes it's complicated. But I think... Basically, this is Gregory Corso looking at a man going for a dip that we wouldn't even notice. And he's thinking about entering the sea, about how we came from the sea, about entering life is a bit like entering the sea. And, you know, you've got to come out again. Even though life feels like the thing, it is a thing we have to leave eventually. There's some big stuff and it's beautifully written. And I'd like you to check out all of these guys because I... Oh, man, I love the beats. And one of my favourite beats is the last one I'm going to talk about now. And this is a poem also from this book. I'm trying to keep it all to one volume. So if you get lucky and see Penguin Modern Poets 5 in a second-hand bookshop, and then you're um, you're away with the show folks, as my dad used to say. Um, this is a poem by Allen Ginsberg. Allen Ginsberg is one of my favourite beats. Um, he... Oh, man. He's, one of his sayings was first thought, best thought. He really believed in blasting it out. He believed in, in a sort of a stream of consciousness and writing. He wrote poems about anything he wanted to write. He didn't sit and think, should I, shouldn't I? He crumpled up the paper and tread it into the dirt more than anyone I can think of. And I love him for that. You start reading uh, Ginsberg, and obviously some of it doesn't work because he's he's so copious in his expression. Some of it doesn't work, but that's fine because a lot of it is is amazing. The poem I want to look at from this book by Ginsberg, and I'll tell you more about Ginsberg as we trundle along in this. Um, it's from 1955, and it's called Sunflower Sutra. Uh, a sutra is a sort of Indian wisdom writing. And I think that might surprise some people that someone was uh, using that sort of terminology in 1955. I think we all think that the Western interest in Eastern religion started in, in the 60s, kind of with the Beatles and stuff. 
But these guys, particularly Ginsburg, but also uh, Kerouac, were completely fascinated by in the 50s and, you know, and, and before then. This particular poem, um, Sunflower Sutra, actually features uh, Jack Kerouac as a, as a character. Um, I should point out that at this point, neither of these were famous people. Um, on the road, Kerouac's uh, masterpiece, I suppose you're going to call it, is um, wasn't uh, published until 57. And Ginsberg's um, sort of defining poem, Howl, wasn't uh, published until 1956. So here, in 1955, this is just two blokes. It's not two famous blokes. And they're, they're walking. Um, if you've ever read any poetry with a capital P... One of the poems that would, if I said to you, name a poem, and you didn't know anything about poem, poetry, one of the ones you might come up with is um, Wordsworth's poem that begins, I wandered lonely as a cloud. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I wandered lonely as a cloud. And it, it, that's, it reminds me, this poem, of that, but in, in, a, in a very striking fashion. So Wordsworth's, uh, William Wordsworth's poetry, he's often wandering through a beautiful landscape and he's in awe at it. Ginsberg and his friend Jack Kerouac in this one are basically wandering through a sort of in industrial waste ground. Uh, this reminds me of the sort of thing I used to do in my drinking days, just two blokes picking their way through rusty discarded vehicles and stuff. Anyway, here goes. So if you think of William Wordsworth and he's walking through beautiful um, scenery, uh, get a load of this. This is a Ginsberg Sunflower Sutra. I'm just going to do the first bit. It's quite prosy as poetry goes, but don't worry. It's, it's just trust me. I walked on the banks of the tin can banana dock and sat down under the huge shade of a Southern Pacific locomotive to look at the sunset over the box house hills and cry. Jack Kerouac sat beside me on a busted, rusty iron pole. Companion. We thought the same thoughts of the soul, bleak and blue and sad-eyed, surrounded by the gnarled steel roots of trees of machinery. Come on! Come on! Um... So that's that's Ginsburg and uh, and Kerouac wandering through all this mire. But of course, it, to us, it would just you know seem like a bit of an old scrapyard. But to Ginsburg, he still finds beauty and still makes it thinks it's a suitable thing for poetry. Um, and then uh, that Wordsworth poem. Um, I'll, to hell with it. I'm going to read you the first bit of the Wordsworth poem. You probably know this or half know it. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. I... I Look, I'm not putting down Wordsworth. Wordsworth was also an amazing poet, and I might talk about him at some point. But in contrast to that, to the um, to the golden daffodils and and all that beauty, um, as they walk on in this poem, uh, th this is uh, there's a sunflower moment, 
um, for for Ginsburg. And the grey sunflower poised against the sunset, crackly, bleak and dusty with the smut and smog and smoke of olden locomotives in its eye, corolla of bleary spikes pushed down and broken like a battered crown, seeds fallen out of its face, soon to be toothless mouth of sunny air, sun rays obliterated on its hairy head like a dried wire spider web. Leaves stuck out like arms out of the stem. Gestures from the sawdust root. Broke pieces of plaster fallen out of the black twigs. A dead fly in its ear. Unholy battered old thing you were, my sunflower. Oh, my soul, I loved you then. Whoa! So a dirty, blackened polluted bear in mind we also think pollution i think is this is a a, a story of nature's decline against the battle uh, against the uh, the great juggernaut of uh, industrialization um, written 65 years ago uh, but how wonderful i i know it i know it sounds cheesy to some of you that this guy is um loves a dirty old sunflower in on some waste ground. Um, Ginsburg was a hippie before there were hippies. He used to do things like naked poetry readings, but it, and he had a massive beard and all that stuff, but he was a great man. He helped many of the other beat writers to get published and stuff very selflessly. And he, I think he... Um, well, look, there's a poem in this same book by Ferlinghetti, who wrote um, sometime during eternity about Ginsburg called He. And I'm just going to give you a little picture of Ginsburg from that. He is one of the prophets come back to see, to hear, to file a revised report on the present state of the shrinking world. He has button hooks in his eyes with which he fastens onto every foot of existence and onto every shoestring rumour of the nature of reality, and his eye fixes itself on every stray person or thing and waits for it to move like a cat with a dead white mouse, suspecting it of hiding some small clue to existence. So he is like a prophet, the big beard, the, the flower in his hand. He is... Uh, as I say, a hippie before there were hippies. He actually became a a, a, a sort of a central figure in the hippie movement, but he was way ahead of that. He was a, a hippie uh, pioneer. Um, so the sutra, anyway, we're gonna get we're gonna get the. Um, I'm going on a bit, so I'm gonna speed through because um, I like reading it fast because I think that's why that's how it was written, and that's how it it, it should be. It should be blasted out, that that beat poetry. So he decides to um, give us a sermon. This, I guess, is his sunflower sutra, his words of wisdom. He warns us, he says, So I grabbed up the skeleton-thick sunflower and stuck it at my side like a scepter and delivered my sermon to my soul and Jack's soul too and anyone who will listen. My voice is slightly breaking. Um... You know what? I'm glad it works well with this kind of stuff. So this is the sermon. And some of you might think this is slightly pretentious. I should tell you that pretentious is my least favourite word. And I think pretentious is a word that shallow thinking people use to deter deep 
thinking people from thinking too deeply because they are afraid of drowning in that deepness. So um, be careful when you use the word pretentious because often it's um, it's a, a defence against um, creativity and originality. This is, um, brace yourselves, this is how the poem ends and you've got a picture, Ginsburg, not with a beard at this stage but spiritually with a beard, holding a dirty old sunflower on waste ground, industrial waste ground, with his friend, both at that point struggling, struggling writers who aren't seemingly getting anywhere. And this is how the poem ends. We are not our skin of grime. We're not our dread, bleak, dusty, imageless locomotive We are all beautiful golden sunflowers inside. We are blessed by our own seed and golden hairy naked accomplishment bodies growing into mad black formal sunflowers in the sunset, spied on by our eyes under the shadow of the mad locomotive riverbank sunset Frisco hilly tin can evening sit-down vision. Oh, Ginsey, 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 I love you so much. And the words just come tumbling out onto the page, I imagined, when he wrote it. Like when you get the jackpot on a fruit machine and all those sparkling, jingling coins come tumbling down to the floor. Um, You should check out the beats. I think... They are tremendous free thinkers. And you'll find um, that, there are, that they are flawed in many ways, that you'll find there's bits of their work. Like, I, you know, Kerouac is a novelist who's not great on plot, but, oh, man, that's why I think his novels are, are probably really poems. Yeah, so I got into all that because my teacher asked me to read Sometime During Eternity by Lawrence Ferlinghetti at a school assembly in 1969. That was was the point I was trying to make. So, thank you so much for listening to this episode of My Poetry Podcast. Don't forget to press subscribe on your favourite podcast app so you never miss an episode. (laughs) Imagine it. And if you enjoyed it, never know, please do rate, review and subscribe. See you next week.